Well, good morning again. Please open up your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. I want to begin by reading this text, beginning in verse 1. Just listen as I read out loud. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. By all accounts, Warren G. Harding was one of the worst presidents in American history. According to New York Times bestselling author Malcolm Gladwell, Warren Harding was not a particularly intelligent man. He liked to play poker and golf and to drink and, most of all, to chase women. In fact, Gladwell says, his sexual appetites were the stuff of legend. As he rose from one political office to another, he never once distinguished himself. He was vague and ambivalent on matters of policy. His speeches were once described as an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. (laughs) Moreover, Harding's career as the 29th president only lasted two years as he died unexpectedly of a stroke. And he left the office tainted with a series of controversies and scandals. In light of such an ignominious career, how did a man like Warren Harding ever even become president? Malcolm Gladwell, in his best-selling book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking offers an intriguing answer in his chapter entitled The Warren Harding Error, Why We Fall for Tall, Dark, and Handsome Men. 
Gladwell explains that as a matter of historical fact, Harding advanced steadily from Ohio politics to the eventual presidency because as he grew older, he grew more and more irresistibly distinguished looking. Once at a banquet, a supporter cried out, why the man looks like a senator. Gladwell writes, quote, many people who looked at Warren Harding saw how extraordinarily handsome and distinguished looking he was and jumped to the immediate and entirely unwarranted conclusion that he was a man of courage and intelligence and integrity. They didn't dig below the surface. The way he looked carried so many powerful connotations that it stopped the normal process of thinking dead in its tracks. End quote. What Gladwell identifies as the Warren Harding error is nothing more than the sin of prejudice and discrimination. It's what James calls the sin of partiality in chapter 2, verse 1. The word translated partiality literally means receiving the face. It's likely that the New Testament writers actually coined this term and brought it over from the Hebrew. It's translated a number of different ways in the various English versions. Some say favoritism, some prejudice, some discrimination, and one even a respecter of persons. To commit the sin of partiality is essentially to judge another person merely based upon their external appearance or demeanor. It is really the opposite of the true religion described in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If true religion consists of caring for the helpless, like orphans and widows, and keeping clean from the world, then the opposite of this is discriminating against the helpless, like the poor, and having attitudes of favoritism and prejudice like those in the world. And while I wish it were not true, sadly, sometimes even Christians can be guilty of the sin of partiality. Sometimes even in the context of the local church. But James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 provides at least four reasons why we, as believers, should avoid the Warren Harding error. Let's look at these together. First, according to verse 1, we should not be partial because we share a common Savior. Notice again what James says in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. As he so often does, James begins this section with an imperative or a command. And James bolsters this command by pointing his readers to their common Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is only the second time in this letter that the name of Christ is used, the other one being in chapter 1, verse 1. Amazingly, 
James identifies Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. This becomes even more astonishing when we remember what God says in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. God has an exclusive claim to glory, and he shares it with no one else. This was the clear teaching of the Old Testament, and James's Jewish readers would have known this. And yet here, James unashamedly calls Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. The text literally reads, Jesus Christ, the glory. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. He shares with the Father the same essence of deity. And because of this, he alone deserves our favored status and recognition. No one else in the church, no matter how flashy their clothing or how captivating their appearance, deserves special treatment. Only Jesus is worthy of favoritism and preferential treatment. Do you see what James is saying here? When we put Jesus Christ on a pedestal and no one else, only then will we not be tempted to elevate anyone else to special status or place in the church. Because believers share a common Savior, the only one who is glorious and worthy of special treatment, we should not be partial to anyone else. There's a second reason why believers should not be partial. It's in verses 1 through 5, and that is because we also share a common salvation. James now reminds his readers about the common spiritual bond that they share with each other. Not only do they have a common Savior in Christ, but they share a common salvation as Christians. He begins by addressing them in verse 1 as, My brothers. This is James's favorite way of referring to his readers. He uses it some 15 times in this letter. And by identifying them in this way, James is directing their attention away from external standards of evaluation and pointing them toward greater spiritual realities. Regardless of their different physical backgrounds, all believers are a part of the same spiritual family. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And not only are we part of the same spiritual family, we also equally possess the same spiritual faith. James says, verse 1, that we should not show partiality as we hold the faith. Christians of Different physical backgrounds, racial, educational, economic, vocational, and cultural, all share a common creed. We all come into the family of God 
the exact same way. By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And we are all equally sinners in need of God's grace. This is our common denominator. Since we, since we share part of the same spiritual family and possess the same faith, then it's natural to conclude that we also share the same fellowship with each other. Sadly, though, this is not always what happens. James moves from an imperative in verse 1 to an illustration in verses 2 through 4. In these verses, there's a surprising turn of events. Notice what he says beginning in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here James presents a scenario. Perhaps it is imagined or maybe it was an actual example that he knew about. But he describes a situation in which two men come into their assembly. The word assembly here in verse 2 is actually the word for synagogue. It likely refers to a specific meeting house where these early Jewish Christians met for worship. But what's important to notice is that these two men are evaluated solely based upon their external appearance. The first man, let's call him Mr. Goldfinger, according to verse 2, comes in wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothing. Gold rings back then signified wealth and status. They were typically only worn by the wealthy upper class. And this particular man was adorned with fine clothes. It's better translated bright or even shiny clothes. The same word is used, for example, in Acts 10 verse 30 to describe the shining apparel of a heavenly messenger. On the surface, this man just looked like someone great. Someone worthy of honor. And then... There's the second man. Let's call him Mr. Shabby Clothes. He's described as wearing filthy or dirty clothing. And he's called a poor man. Based on his outward appearance alone, it would be easy to think that this man was just a bum off the street. Maybe he was smelly. Perhaps his clothes were torn and tattered. But he did not look like someone worthy of special status. As both these men come into the assembly, the other believers in the room immediately begin to make value judgments about these men based upon what they see. As they do so, the worn Harding error creeps into their evaluations. Wow! Look at that guy! The gold ring, the bright clothes, why, he just looks like the kind of man our church could use. The ushers see both men arrive, and they quickly rush to welcome Mr. Goldfinger. 
they escort him to the best seat in the house. But Mr. Shabby Clothes is told to stand in the back, out of sight. When someone else sees him standing in the back, perhaps they think he's too distracting back there. Maybe it might be better if you came and sat down right here by my feet. Sadly, according to verse 4, these believers made distinctions among themselves solely based upon external factors. They sinfully evaluated these two visitors merely based upon their outward appearance. Rather than seeing these men as equally made in the image of God and as equally sinners in need of God's grace, they elevated one and denigrated another. And in so doing, these Christians had adopted a worldly perspective and had become judges with evil thoughts. They were more concerned about people's outward appearance than they were about inward dignity. But James urges us to view people like God does, to look at people's hearts rather than their faces, to look at the internal rather than the external. And in order to help us align our perspective with God's, James takes us back all the way back to eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when God elected believers for a common salvation. Look at what he says in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? Now, at first glance, this verse may seem to suggest that all poor people are automatically favored by God, regardless of whether or not they have faith in Christ. But the Bible's repeated emphasis on faith as the condition for justification clearly rules this out. I think what James is saying here is that by and large, throughout history, And even in modern times, the church has largely been composed of economically poor people. It may be hard for us as modern American Christians, all of our prosperity, to understand this. But the first century, this was definitely the case. The Apostle Paul describes the makeup of the early church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes... For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of God's preference for the poor, Christians should not discriminate against them. Many millions of poor people have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love 
him. James tells us that we should not be partial because we share a common Savior, because we share a common salvation. And third, we are told in verses 6 through 7 that we also share a common situation. Look again at these verses, beginning in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Ironically, by discriminating against the poor and elevating the rich, James's original readers were taking sides with the very people who were persecuting them. This entire group of early Christians composed largely of the, of the poor, but also including those who were wealthy, all of them were being persecuted. They shared a common situation together. James uses the plural form of the pronoun you four times in verses 6 through 7. He lumps the whole church together. James asks three questions here. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? And are they not the ones who blaspheme or speak against the honorable name of God? And yet, despite all that they are doing, you want to take sides with them and discriminate against the poor in your midst? These readers would have felt the sting of this indictment. Do you? The broader point here is that in showing partiality against people, these Christians were acting just like the world. When you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, discriminate against people based upon how they look or how much money they make or don't make, or what kind of personality they have, or how they make us feel. When we do these things, we act just like the world. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament, there are statements affirming God's fundamental impartiality. Peter said in Acts 10, verse 34, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11 says, there is no partiality with God. Ephesians 6.9 says, and you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master is also in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In Colossians 3.25, Paul writes, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. All of these statements portray God as impartial and indiscriminate. Certainly those who have been called by his noble name should share his character. But when we discriminate against those different from us by choosing not to be around them, by avoiding them or overlooking them, we look more like the world 
in God. We have seen several reasons why we should avoid partiality in the church. Because we share a common Savior, because we share a common salvation, because we share a common situation, and now finally we see in verses 8 through 13 that we also share a common standard. Let's read this section again, beginning in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James calls the law of God the royal law in verse 8, and the law of liberty in verse 12. On the one hand, the law of God is royal because it comes from the high king of heaven. On the other hand, the law of God gives us liberty because by his Holy Spirit, he has given us the ability to obey it. In both cases, the law is most likely a reference to all the commandments of God viewed from the vantage point of the New Testament and the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, the law here is not simply the law of Moses summarized in the Ten Commandments. It is is the law that that Jesus Christ gave to his church, summarized in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Jesus was once asked, What is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament law? He responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus boils down the entire Old Testament law to these two commandments. Love God and love others. But here, James stresses that we are called by God to love our neighbors as ourselves in verse 8. This is a call to love other people, whether they're white or black, whether they're slave or free, whether they're male or female, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're single or married, whether they're young or old, educated or uneducated. We are called to love all people from our hearts in our actions, and with our words. And this means that we should not be partial towards anyone. We should not make value judgments based upon external factors or using superficial standards. An aspect of loving others is accepting them for who they are, not who we wish that they would be. Notice what James says in verse 9, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
When we are partial, we break God's law. And verses 10 through 11 say that if we break one law, we are accountable for all of it. What does this mean? One writer explains, quote, The Bible teaches that the law of love is part of the entire law, which stands as a unified whole. Partiality, murder, and adultery are seen to be parts of the whole law. To fail to treat our neighbors as ourselves is to be guilty of disregarding the law of God. James is not saying that all sins are the same in magnitude and result. But he is making the point that breaking one of the commandments puts the offender in the class of transgressors. End quote. We are called in this passage to adhere to the same standard by loving all people without discrimination. But we are also going to be held accountable by that same standard. James says in verses 12 through 13, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because you and I are sinners, we have not kept all the commandments of God in a perfect way. We have all been guilty of partiality in one form or another. We have all violated God's law in one way or another. And as a result, we are all condemned as transgressors. But the good news is that God, out of his great mercy and grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this world in order to perfectly obey his law and fulfill its every requirement. And then Jesus Christ, the sinless one, died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God that is against those who transgress his law. Jesus propitiated means he completely appeased God's wrath. And then he rose again from the grave to new life. And because of what he did, all who trust in him and repent of their sins can have the righteousness of Christ, his perfect record of law-keeping, will be credited to their account, and they will be treated by God just as if they never sinned, but as if they had always obeyed. Sinners who trust in Jesus can be justified and forgiven of their sin. Those who believe in Jesus will be given mercy. And, James says, this mercy triumphs over judgment. But here's the kicker. If you have been truly shown mercy, forgiven of all of your sins because of Jesus Christ, then you will freely show mercy to others. When you show other people mercy by loving them and not discriminating against them, you demonstrate that you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, one who has been given mercy. 
How we love other people reveals whether or not we are truly trusting in Jesus Christ. As James says in the next section, which we will look at the next time I preach, Lord willing, those who truly have faith will produce works. The works of love, mercy, and impartiality. Let me briefly name just a few practical applications for our lives. First, in order to show impartial love to others, evaluate people based upon their inward dignity rather than their outward appearance. What is your initial attitude about people who look different than you? Is it to judge and avoid them or to love and show mercy to them? Do you find yourself repeatedly hanging around the same kind of people? Do you associate only with those who are part of your social circle? Young people, do you make an effort to hang around with those who are older? Married couples, do you take the time to get to know the singles in this church and invest in their lives? This goes both ways, associating with people who are not like us. A second way we can show impartial love to others is to evaluate people based upon heavenly standards rather than worldly principles. Is your treatment of other people based upon what they can do for you or what you can do for them? This may mean giving your time, money, or attention to a person who can give you absolutely nothing in return. It may mean that, that you share Christ with that bum on the street that you think would never give you the time of day. It means that you're willing to inconvenience yourself to benefit someone who is not a family member, a part of your circle of friends. There are many, many other ways to apply this passage, and hopefully you can take some time in your various small groups to tease out the implications of this text. But as those who have been shown impartial love and mercy by God, we should not commit the sin of partiality because we share with our, our fellow believers a common Savior, a common salvation, a common situation, and a common standard. I want to close by referring again to the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Toward the back of the book, Gladwell offers a brief rationale behind why he decided to write this book. His comments helpfully bring home the main point that we have seen today from James chapter 2. Just listen. A few years ago, he says, before I began Blink, I grew my hair long. 
It used to be cut very short and conservatively. But I decided on a whim to let it grow wild as it had been while I was a teenager. Immediately, in very small but significant ways, my life changed. I started getting speeding tickets, and I had never gotten any before. I started getting pulled out of airport security lines for special attention. And one day, while walking along 14th Street in downtown Manhattan, a police van pulled up on the sidewalk and three officers jumped out. They were looking, it turned out, for a rapist. And the rapist, they said, looked a lot like me. They pulled out the sketch and the description I looked at it and pointed out to them as nicely as I could that, in fact, the man looked nothing at all like me. He was much taller and much heavier and about 15 years younger. And, I added in a largely futile attempt at humor, not nearly as good looking. (laughs) All we had in common was a large head of curly hair. After 20 minutes or so, the officers finally agreed with me and let me go. On the grand scale of things, I realize this was a trivial misunderstanding. African Americans in the United States suffer indignities far worse than this all the time. But what struck me was how even more subtle and absurd the stereotyping was in my case. This wasn't about something really obvious, such as skin color or age or height or weight. It was just about hair. Something about the first impression created by my hair derailed every other consideration in the hunt for the rapist. End quote. How sad it is that we too can be guilty of the same kind of superficial prejudice based upon external factors. The bottom line of this passage today, which is also the big idea that I want to leave you with, is this. When we understand God's impartial love for us, then we will be better motivated to show impartial love to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit, show us how to impartially love those that you place in our lives. I pray that you would do this for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.